First thing on the worksheet is authorship. We're going to talk about who wrote Samuel, First Samuel anyway. Samuel is likely responsible for much of the content initially, but the record of his death recorded in 25.1 indicates that there were almost certainly other authors. I say almost certainly because you never quite know for sure. that It is possible that God would have said, all right, write this all down, Samuel. I'm going to tell you how things come out after you die. I don't think that's what happened, but it's a possibility, so it's worth considering. But somebody probably added to the work that perhaps Samuel began. At any rate, if you check the note there for 1 Chronicles 29.29, let's go there and take a look at it. This mentions the Chronicles of Samuel the Seer, and that's what a prophet was called in those days. And so we've got this record of uh, the Chronicles of Samuel. In 1 Chronicles 29.29, so if Samuel did not write those chronicles, somebody apparently accurately wrote down history about Samuel and what he did, and that has been given, uh, would you call it a bonification, by being put in 1 Chronicles, and then back in chapter 27 of 1 Chronicles, mentions the chronicles of King David. So in 29.29, this is how it reads, The acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. So these are chronicles that were uh, given... What's the word I'm looking for here? Not just given credit, but they were given credence by being put in first chronicles. But... That everything that they did during the day and everything, didn't they have a scribe that sat down and he wrote everything that happened? Yes, scribes who acted as historians. Yeah. enough on the authorship, what uh, gives me confidence is the fact that the ancients, ancient Hebrews accepted this as an inspired work and they had it in their uh, collection of God-inspired writings and the way they uh, check things out, that gives it great credence in my mind. So let's talk about the time frame. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. It says, it came to pass in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. 
In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Zeev, which is the second month, they began to build the house of the Lord. So how many years after they came out of Egypt did Solomon begin to build the temple? That's, we got a record of that right here in 1 Kings 6, 1, 480th year. So you go back from that. You take that four years, we're into Solomon's reign for four years. Take that four years and you add that to how many years of David's reign? That would be 40. That's what we're looking at. And then how many reign, how many years of Saul's reign? Text says 42. So we, we add that up and we get uh, a date for Saul's anointing by Samuel around 1052 BC. So if you're one of those detail-oriented historical folks who likes to have an idea when things took place time-wise, we're looking at just a little over 3,000 years ago that this all took place. And I like the fact that God has included in his historical record details that can be checked out so that we can read it and know that it's bona fide. I like that word, especially after I've seen that movie. Uh, old brother, where art thou? Y'all see that movie? I, I hesitate to recommend it because I can't remember everything I saw in it. But they, this one guy they call, he's bona fide. Little girls, he's bona fide. Anyway, I thought it was funny. Any questions about the authorship or the time frame? There's a historical tone that I wanted to note. If you read the last verse of Judges chapter 25, which is the last verse of Judges completely, this is how it reads. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you may be aware that this is the second time this statement is made in the book of Judges. There was no king. There was no leadership. However, did they need a king? They, God should have been the king. That's all they really needed. If they would have been keeping the law, they would have needed no king. But they weren't keeping the law. And if you read Judges, you'll find out that that's the record of Judges. There was a, a cycle that the Israelites went through that is recorded in Judges. Everything would be going fine, and so uh, since things are going fine, you get lax in your spirituality, and they would sin. God would send the nation to punish them. They would repent. They would be restored. And then after a certain period of having been restored, they'd get comfortable again, and they would once again rebel. And the, the cycle just kept going. So by the time we get to the end of Judges, this is what we read. There was no king, so everybody did what was right in his own eyes. You can kind of read between the lines. If everybody was spiritually inclined and God inclined in that spirituality, then that'd be fine if everybody did what was right in his own eyes. But if you read Judges and you see how the people were likely to behave, you would know that's really bad news. And so that's, that's the historical tone, that's the setting in Israel when we get into uh, 1 Samuel. But I want to do something a little different as we start this class. Instead of getting right into the text, which I really like to do, uh, I'm, I'm going to back off and I'm going to try something I've not done before. We're going to start looking at 
all the people that we will meet. And uh, there's a lot of them. I thought, we'll just do the first 16 chapters, and it worked out well as I did the people we meet in the first 16 chapters. It took us down to the end of three pages because I don't like to have an extra wasted space on a page. Yeah, so made me feel really good. I had to cut some of these statements short, but it worked out. So, All right, folks to whom we are introduced in this book, you'll be filling in some lines here. Elkanah, he's an Ephraimite. Hannah's husband, and he's also the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth. Now, why would the original writer put that information in there? It was credibility. And it, it doesn't say that's why they put it in, but I know for my purpose, when I read that, oh, this is, this is a credible text because he's giving background. He's saying this is who Elkanah was. He's the son of this guy, son of that guy, son of that guy. And those who were there in that day would have known, oh, those guys existed. We know that family. We know that line. Hannah, chapter 1, verse 2, she was the blank of Elkanah. Wife, of course. Oh, careful now. Penina, who was the second wife? Penina was also the wife of Elkanah. It was a different day, different time. Things weren't done exactly as they are now. And then there is the Lord of hosts. We are introduced, quote unquote, to the Lord of hosts. This is God, of course, one of many blank titles. And I would put the word descriptive, a descriptive title for God. He is the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? What's a host? All right, everybody around us. The, the innumerable company of angels uh, mentioned in Hebrews and other places. The Lord of hosts, whatever spiritual beings there are in heaven, he would be completely in charge of those. What did Jesus say just before he ascended? All authority is given me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus also, by that claim, was Lord of hosts. Where are we here? Uh, Eli, priest and blank of Israel. What else was he besides a priest? He was a, he was a prophet in a sense, but he was also a judge. That's what's pointed out in the text. He was a judge. When you look at the, the list of judges in Israel, we, we tend to go to the book of Judges, of course. It makes perfect sense. Who was the first judge? What do you have for breakfast? Oatmeal. Oatmeal makes you think of Othniel. Othniel was the name of the guy who was the first judge. That's how I remember he was the first guy, because I think of oatmeal. I don't know if he minds having his name associated with oatmeal, but oatmeal's good for you. And Othniel was the first judge of Israel, so that was good for them. Last judge would have probably been Samuel's boys. And they were rotten. We'll find that out here in a little bit. Samuel, Elkanah, and Hannah's son, blank to Hannah's prayer? Answer to Hannah's prayer. 
By the way, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you want a definition of prayer, go to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and read what Hannah said about what she was doing. What did she say she was doing when Eli questioned her? Pouring out her soul to the Lord. That's what she was doing. And I think that's the best description of prayer we'll have anywhere. All right, there's a little blank because we're going from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Now we're in chapter 2. We hear about three sons and two daughters in 221, also born to Hannah, blank Samuel. After Samuel, Samuel was born first. She was barren. She had no children until she prayed to God and God gave her Samuel. That was her first child, her first boy. And then she had three sons and two daughters after that. Man of God. I put it in quotes because we don't know his name, but that's how he's described, 227. He's an unnamed prophet. And he is sent to blank Eli. What does the prophet do regarding Eli? He reprimands him or he reproves him. He, he scolds him. He says, God is going to come in judgment on you. And so you can read about that yourself. <clears throat> By the way, I never realized how many individuals and, and groups, because we're not just talking about individuals. We're all ta- also talking about groups of people. There are in 1 Samuel until I just went through looking for individuals and groups of people. It's interesting. Just a different way to study, different way to start a study. Second page, Philistines. Chapter 4, verse 1. Dwellers in coastal Canaan. Coastal Canaan. They were seafarers. We don't read about that much in the Bible, but... That's what they were known for. They were the continual enemies of Israel. And then we read about the elders of Israel for the first time in Samuel in chapter 4, verse 3. Not always known for brilliant decisions. And the reason I say that is because in chapter 4, they've said, let's take the ark into battle. And that will help us win. What kind of an idea is that? You can say it. That's a dumb idea because <laughs> God had not directed them to do such a thing. But that's what they did. And in battle with the Philistines, they lost the ark. And that's what we're coming to here in a little bit. Uh, a man of Benjamin. He was a refugee from a blank battle with the Philistines. And that would be losing. Now, if you're, I hope what you're doing is, is kind of flipping through, scanning through your text as we're looking at these folks. The Philistines lined up in battle array against Israel, and the Israelites took the, the ark out, thinking that that would help them win. They, they just weren't seeing things as they should have. And I don't mean to judge them because I wasn't there. I don't know what, what they had to go on, but they should have known that wasn't the right thing to do. And they lost the battle, and they lost the ark to the Philistines. And this guy comes back, and he says, man, we've lost everything. And Hophni and Phinehas are dead. Who'd he tell that to? Came back and said, Hophni and Phinehas. Did we even talk about Hophni and Phinehas? We didn't? How did we miss those guys? (laughs) Where were Hophni and Phinehas? 
oh, okay, it's just, it's back in chapter 1 where it says, chapters 1 through 4, Eli, he's priest and judge of Israel, and he's the father of Hophni and Phinehas, and we didn't talk about Hophni and Phinehas. I correct myself, I didn't talk about Hophni and Phinehas. I kind of skipped right over that. See, I didn't make blanks for those guys because I thought, oh, I'm going to talk about those guys at that point, and then I didn't. So Hophni and Phinehas were his scoundrel sons, and he did not correct them. That's why the man of God was sent to correct him. We'll, we'll get into this later in more detail when we start reading through the text. Phineas's wife does not give her name. This is 419. She gave blank at the time of Phineas's and Eli's death. She gave birth. And she named the boy, the next dot, Ichabod, which means, anybody looking at that have a footnote in the side? It means no glory. No glory. Why would you name your boy no glory? Well, she did that because of the circumstances, right or wrong. She's giving birth and she gets news. Hey, uh, your husband's dead. By the way, your father-in-law's dead. All the men you've depended on are gone. And the ark is gone. The ark of the covenant's been taken by the Philistines, so she names that boy Ichabod. Don't name your sons Ichabod. Better than Jezebel for your daughters, I guess, but still not a good name. But I think that sometimes they give a name to a person to... Make a point in history, you know, the year of this or the year of that. And it was part of the oral history if, if someone had a name like that. Right. And sometimes God will be the one who I want you to call this boy that or call him this. What's the longest name in the Bible? Anybody remember? May her shall al hashbaz. Could you imagine first grade? And what's your name, little fella? May her shall al hash bass. <laughs> well, you know, when they were passing out Valentine cards, he probably didn't get many. Probably had a nickname. But what does may her shall al hash bass mean? Anybody recall? It, it has to do with hasten to the spoils and the victory. That's it, a name with meaning. And God would give other names to other sons. Uh, Isaiah had some boys, and they had special names because of the message God wanted to get out through through them. So, yeah, what was what was Abraham's original name? Abram. What does Abraham mean? Father of nations, if I'm not mistaken. And Sarai was changed to. Sarah, which means princess. Uh, any other names you recall that were changed? One very important name. Jacob, changed to Israel. What does Israel mean? He who struggles with God. That's what he was doing. He was struggling with God's angel. And his hip went out of joint. And the angel said, you're going to be called Jacob from this point on. And and that's a perfect name because it typifies the relationship that the nation of Israel has constantly had with God, has yet today struggling with God. So 
Very interesting, this idea of names having meaning. If you research your name, it probably has some meaning. Uh, It may not be the reason your parents gave you that name, but it probably has a meaning going back in history somewhere. All right, chapter 5 through 8, Dagon. He was one of the primary blank of the Philistines, gods. Philistine priests and diviners, they counseled about the blank of God. What are we going to do about the blank of God? The ark of God, because when when the Israelites lost the ark to the Philistines, the Philistines said, woohoo, we got the ark of God. Man, we had a great victory here, and then God began to strike them. Uh, The word I really like is smote. He smote them. That's a great word, smote or smite. And he smote them in their hinder parts, the King James says. And they had mice problems, and mice are, if you've ever had anything stored that you wanted to keep and the mice got in it, they will ravage something. They'll chew it up and they'll do other things on top of it that make it smell really bad. Mice are horrible pests. And if God strikes you with mice, you know it's going to be bad. And so they wanted to get rid of the ark. What are we going to do about this thing? That's how the Philistine priests and diviners counseled about the ark. Joshua the Beth Shemite. He is the Israelite to whom the ark came they the the philistines got a couple of milk cows and they they put hooked them up to a cart and put the ark on a cart and sent it off thinking okay if if this is god's doing he'll bring it home and he sure did he brought it to the to the land of this fella to his field joshua the bethshemite he's the one who received the ark initially the levites they came and they took charge of the ark when it came to his property, to Joshua the Beth Shemite's property. He said, hey, got the ark in my backyard. What do you got? You guys are going to come get it? Yeah, yeah, we'll be there right down there. And they came down, they took charge of it, did the things that needed to be done for it. There were Levites, and they were taking up their responsibility. Five lords of the Philistines... They stayed, when they turned those cows loose with the ark on that cart, they stayed to watch what happened. So we would say they observed the the return of the ark. And I get the impression from this, they were the lords and said, we're going to make sure that ark gets back to its rightful people because we are sick and tired of what God is doing to us based on having the ark Do you think that was really out of respect for God or something else? It can't come from God or just naturally. So they said when they released if it goes back to the Israelites, God did it. If it doesn't go back to the Israelites, it's just a random happening. All right. So, so, so they did have some degree of faith. This was God doing this, but wasn't really... Faith in God as as the creator of the universe? I I don't think so. I kind of doubt that. The text doesn't really say. So to ask the question, ask for speculation. Fear, yeah. Well, if you got bad stuff happening to you and you're already uh, idol worshipers, you're probably about as uh, superstitious as it gets. And the only thing I like about superstition is the song that Stevie Wonder wrote about it back in the 70s. That's a great song, by the way. Just a little bit of rock and roll history. Is that even rock and roll? It's not kind of rock and roll. Anyway, 
They were superstitious, and they had to figure, man, this is bad luck. This is bad things happening to us. We've got to find a way to get rid of that. So, so that's what they did, and the five lords of the Philistines stayed, and they watched the ark return. Chapter 7, verse 1, Abinadab. He is a man of Kiriath-Jerim, in whose blank the ark was kept. In his house. How long was it kept? 20 years. 20 years it stayed in his house after the ark was brought back. They did not collect it up and take it right back. Where would they have taken it to? Where had the ark been initially? Where did Hannah come to pray? A place called Shiloh. Shiloh. Got to go there in September. That was That's my favorite of all the places we went in Israel. That's my favorite place to have been is Shiloh. Pretty cool. I've got some pictures, Lord willing, next week. Uh, show you some pictures of Shiloh. It's kind of hard to show you the pictures. I mean, I can show you the pictures, but to really see anything, because that's a point at which, like much of the area we saw, it's just stone. Everything is stone, and all the stone has the same color. So you've got all these three dimensions you're looking at when you're standing there and you take a picture and then you look at the picture and it's two-dimensional and everything just kind of blends together because it's all the same color stone. Anyway, uh, we were there and I got some pictures of it. We'll show you and talk to you about that. Shiloh. So they didn't take it back to Shiloh immediately. They stayed in his house for 20 years. And then there is Eleazar in chapter 7, verse 1. He is the son of Abinadab whom he blanked to keep the ark. He consecrated him to keep the ark. And I don't even know what that means. Uh, you look at the law and everything that God stipulated about the ark, it's like, and I, I don't mean to put any human characteristics on God, but sometimes I think God just, he just kind of stands up in heaven, and go, oh man, those crazy people. They're doing it again. What, what are we going to do? And just wait. Just wait for 20 years. Leave the ark there. What's time to God? So it's kind of a goofed up situation because spiritually the people are goofed up. Then there are the Amorites. That's a generalized term for that's used for the Philistines. There were different family groups, and this is one of those uh, groups. By the way, you remember... Back in Genesis 15, I think it was, God was talking to Abraham. said, I'm going to give you descendants like the stars of the heavens, like the sand of the sea, and I'm going to bring them into this country, but I'm not going to bring them in right now. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, when their cup gets full of iniquity, I'm sending your children in in judgment. How did God know that would all come together to be the same time uh, that... Moses was in the desert waiting to be called. Although Moses didn't know he was waiting to be called. <laughs> he was 80 years old, probably figured a nice place to retire. And there he goes off down to Egypt and then spends the next 40 years with the Israelites complaining in the desert. Joel and Abijah, chapter 8, verse 2. These are the two sons of Samuel whom he made judges over Israel. But they were rotten. They were bad boys. They were no better than Eli's boys. And it makes me wonder, you know, you read this stuff, and it's history, it's facts, and you, and you read it. And you wonder, did Samuel learn how to be a father from Eli? Because Eli's boys were rotten eggs. And maybe Samuel picked up the same kind of parenting 
from, I, I don't know. And sometimes it has nothing to do with your parenting. Chapter 9, verse uh, 9 through 12. Kish, he was a Benjamite who was the blank of Saul, father of Saul. Now, unless you know the history, it doesn't really strike you that he was a Benjamite. But when you go back in Judges, you read about a horrible situation that took place where there was actually a civil war within Israel against the Benjamites. We won't go into all those details right now. But a lot of that came to a head and then was kind of rectified near Shiloh because the Benjamites were almost wiped out. But there were a few hundred left, and they said, all right, we've wiped these guys out. They need some wives. What are we going to do? Well, here's some people down here. Their, their daughters come out and dance for this festival. Let's go down there and kidnap a bunch of women and hand them over as wives. So that's, that was a fun time back then. <laughs> and that's, that's how Benjamin was kept from being completely wiped out. So we're looking for a king over Israel. We're going to take him from the tribe that the rest of the tribes just about wiped out earlier. Saul, chapter 9, verse 2. He's the son of Kish, choice, handsome, and a head taller than everybody else. And then there's Kish's servant. Remember who Kish is? That's Saul's dad. Kish had a servant, and he sent this servant with Saul to find some lost donkeys. Man of God. We see this term again, but this is a different man of God, and it turns out to be Samuel. They can't find the donkeys. Saul and his servant, and his servant counsels him. Well, hey, I, there's a man of God over here. If we go see him, uh, I've, I've got a coin that I've been saving up. We can give him that coin, and maybe he'll tell us where the donkeys are. And so they go to find the man of God, and it turns out that fella is Samuel, and Samuel is waiting for Saul's arrival. There's a cook, chapter 9, verse 23. <clears throat> Why put the cook in here? Because he's there. He was mentioned in the text, and it's significant because Samuel goes to the cook, and he says, hey, I've got a special portion reserved for Saul. When he comes, you set that portion that's been prepared in front of him. I want him to have that. So that's how the cook comes in. He was told to set a, a reserved portion of food before Saul. And then there's two men. Almost seems random, but it's not random. These guys were prophesied by Saul to blank Saul near Rachel's tomb. They were going to meet him. Saul, when you leave here, we've had this feast. You've got the special portion that I've set aside for you. All that's done. Now you're taken off. You're headed back home. When you go, you're going to meet these two guys by Rachel's tomb. He's told all of this because what has Samuel told Saul at the feast? You're anointed to be king. You're, you're going to be the king of Israel. I know, we'll get into the details later. So, so that Saul can believe what he's saying, he says, here's what's going to happen to you when you leave. You're going to meet these two guys at Rachel's tomb. And then three men, you're going to meet three others. Others prophesied by Samuel to meet Saul at the Oak of Tabor. 
Larry, do you guys still have that property? It's probably sold, huh? That's Larry and Norma Tabor, by the way, if you're visiting with us. And then there was a group of prophets after those two groups, and this is still more prophesied of Samuel to meet Saul at the hill of God. So consider that you're Saul. You're among the least of the tribes, the tribe that was almost wiped out, and your family is one of the least of the families in the least tribe. And here Samuel, the prophet of Israel, has told you, you're going to be the next king. What? What? There's no way. Oh, yeah, you're going to be the next king. Here's, here's how you'll know I'm telling you the truth. As soon as you leave here, you're going to meet these two guys by Rachel's tomb, and this is what's going to happen. Then you're going to meet three more guys down there by the Oak of Tabor, and this is what's going to happen with them. And then you're going to see even more guys when you get to the Hill of God, where there's a Philistine garrison. So these things happen, and it's like, oh, okay, 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 maybe he's right. Then we have the Spirit of God mentioned in chapter 10, verse 10. This is the first mention of the Spirit of God in Samuel. And there is Saul's uncle, chapter 10, verse 14. What does he do when Saul returns? He questions Saul. Hey, what, what happened when you were out there looking for those donkeys? I don't know why he asks those things, but the text is very clear to say Saul does not tell him what Samuel told him about being king. So that's something that Saul at that point is keeping to himself. All right, we're on the third page. Can you believe it? I'm actually getting through a worksheet. Chapter 10, verse 26, there are the valiant men. These are men who aligned, A-L-I-G-N-E-D, aligned themselves with Saul after Samuel announced him as a king. You want valiant men aligning themselves with you? And then there were worthless men. They refused to honor Saul as king at this point. That will, that will change. But at this point, we're not going to pay any attention to this guy. He's not our king. Sound familiar? Not my president. That's not right, by the way. Like him or hate him. God says, respect your leaders. Pray for them. It takes more faith to pray for a president you don't like than it takes to pray for one you do. How did I get off on that? I don't know. But here's Saul. He's been put up as the first king. And you got some guys saying, yeah, we, we are going to get behind him and support him. And other guys saying, nope, we're not going to do that. Then you've got Nahash the Ammonite. He came to besiege Jabesh Gilead. So Saul's newly anointed king. And here's your first problem. Nahash the Ammonite is besieging Jabesh Gilead. Interesting account. So the elders of Jabesh Gilead, chapter 11, verse 3, they sent messengers to, to Saul. Hey, new king, we need some help. And then, of course, there are the messengers. Those are the ones sent to Saul. I just put them in there because it's I'm, I'm, I'm obliged now. I'm talking about individuals and groups of individuals. we got these messengers. We'll put them in the text. 
There's Jonathan, 13-2. He's the son of Saul. He's a valiant warrior, and he became David's friend. Really, he became David's best friend. Very close relationship between those two guys. And then there's Jonathan's armor bearer in chapter 14, verse 1. He blanked Jonathan into battle. He would follow him into battle. There's Ahijah, chapter 14, verse 3. He is the brother of Ichabod. Wait a minute, who's Ichabod? Whose dad is Ichabod? Phinehas, one of those bad boys of Eli's sons. His wife gave birth after she got the news that her dad Eli and her husband Phinehas had died and the ark was in the hands of the Philistines. So she names her son Ichabod. What does Ichabod mean? No glory. No glory. So now we've got Ahijah, who is the brother of Ichabod, and he is the son of Phinehas, of course. And he is a blank serving at Shiloh. He's a priest serving at Shiloh. Saul's watchman. Saul has these guys keeping watch in chapter 14, verse 6. These guys saw Israel blank, blank as they awaited Samuel's arrival. Saw them melt away. Their enemies were ready for battle. And Samuel said, don't you guys do anything until I get there. And then he delayed. There was a point in time for him to be here. And then he hadn't showed and he hadn't showed. And Saul is watching all of his army just get smaller and smaller and smaller. The Israelites are melting away. That's what his watchmen are seeing. Then there's Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah. In chapter 14, verse 47, these are Canaanites from whom Saul delivered Israel. Just another groups, several groups of Canaanites that Saul had to fight and deliver Israel. And in the process of fighting them, he gained clout as king. There's the Amalekites in chapter 14, verse 48. These are children of Esau. They are Edomites, therefore, who inhabited southern portions of Canaan. And they were blanks of Israel. Enemies, more enemies of Israel. Jonathan, Ishvi, Malchishua, chapter 14, 49. These are sons of Saul, along with blanks, Merab, and Michael. Daughters. So Saul had three sons and two daughters. Ahinoam is the blank of Saul. That's Mrs. Saul. Saul's wife was named Ahinoam. And then there's Abner. He is the son of Ner. He is the blank of Saul's army. He's his captain. All right, chapters 15 and 16. The Kenites, these are a nomadic people rewarded by Saul for their blank to Israel as they came from Egypt. What would you put in that blank? Their kindness. They showed kindness to Israel. Not many people did, but the Kenites did. And so Saul tells them before he wipes out of town, you guys better get out of here. We're going to wipe this place out. There's Agag. He is the king of the Amalekites. He's captured and blank, blank by Saul. He's kept alive. This is significant because what did God say to do? Kill them all. Kill them all. And Sam, uh, Saul did not do that. He kept them alive. Jesse, he is of the tribe. What tribe would Jesse be from? What tribe was Christ from? Judah. So he's a line of David. Jesse is a Judah, a Judean. He's the father of David. Elders of Bethlehem, 16.4, they worried that Samuel's visit might mean blank, blank for them. Bad news. 
This is because this is right after, well, I don't know that it's because, but I surmise it's because this is right after Samuel went to Saul and Saul had not waited for Samuel to arrive. He says he forced himself to offer the sacrifice, which is what he's supposed to wait for Samuel to do. And Samuel said, all right, God has taken the kingdom from you. You're not a man after his own heart, and he's looking for a guy after his own heart. God's going to take the kingdom away from you. So that was bad news for Saul. And it may well be that these guys thought, oh, man, here come, here he's coming to us now. It's going to be bad news. And actually it was very good news because Samuel was going to anoint one of their own to be the next king, a good man, man after God's own heart. Eliab, son of Jesse, he is impressive to Samuel. Samuel sees him and he's impressed with his appearance. But what is he by God? He is Rejected as king, not rejected as a person, but rejected as king. And then you got two other groups of sons there. Another son of Jesse, that's Abinadab. He's also rejected. Shema, Shama is also rejected. Then you got four other sons of Jesse who come after these three. They're all rejected. These seven sons are rejected as king. But who's left? David. And he is the blank son of Jesse. Youngest son, the youngest son is always the best, brightest, smartest, best looking. David was ruddy. He had nice eyes, it says in the text. He was handsome. He was anointed to be king, blank, blank of Saul. In place of Saul. In place of Saul. So, a lot of history here, and we... Kind of got through this in perfect time. A little unorthodox way to start a class. But if you'll hold on to this, you'll have some idea as we go through the text who these people were. And at some point, we'll pick up and we'll do, starting with chapter 17, go through the rest of the chapters. There's not not as many characters. Another thing I'd thought about doing, but it would probably take too much time, I was going to go through Samuel and do the same thing with all the places Every place they named, we talk about where that place is and what happened there. But, man, we're talking about a lot of time. So hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get into the actual text of Samuel next week. Anybody got any observations or questions, any comments? Anything as we close? All right. Lord willing, we'll do this pickup next week. Thank you. You're dismissed.